Not every chapter in a book is the pivotal point of the story. Not every chapter is a turning point, a big reveal of the problem or the crisis which turns towards resolution. But a good story has many chapters that develop the themes, enrich the storyline, introduce new characters along the way, pointing us to the end goal. This is where we are in the book of Genesis this morning. If you're visiting this morning, we've been preaching through the first, uh, first chapters, 1 through 11, of uh, the book of Genesis, and we have come to one of those chapters which may on the surface seem like a less significant chapter because of its, well, along the wayness. But in, I think as we look at it this morning, we will see that, in fact, it is a rich chapter with much to help us see the big picture and the development of the themes and the introduction of the characters that we need to know to see what God is doing. If you'd like to follow along with me, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 5 in the beginning of chapter 6. That's on page 4 in your pew Bible. And just to remind you, or if you haven't been here to give you a a bit of a heads up, chapter one is the glorious chapter of God's creation of all things in the heaven and the earth. And then in chapter two, verse four, you remember it says, these are the generations of, and that we learned that this was the, the, the literary clue. This is a new section. And then what we saw in chapters two and three and four was this special creation of humanity and its glory and beauty and and gendered loveliness of male and female in God's image. And then we saw in chapter three the tragic fall of humanity as they rebelled against God and rejected him and went their own way and the curse of of sin fell upon them as God judged them for their rebellion. Chapter four then was the outworking of this as we begin to see sin unfolding and spreading throughout the world. Humanity is in a tailspin at the end of chapter four. It seems to be getting worse. Murder and more murder from Cain to Lamech with just a hint at the end of maybe some hope that people were turning to God. And this brings us to our chapter this morning, chapter five. And if you look at your Bible, you'll see that chapter five begins one of these new sections. This is the book of the generations of Adam. This is a new section that just goes from 5.1 to 6.8. We'll see that again in 6.9, there's another. These are the generations of. This is the book of the generation of. So this is a discrete part of the story. And here what we will see is the story developing of where does humanity go from here? Will the tailspin continue? What will God do? Where is this going? And we know because we've all been to Sunday school at one point or another that what's coming is this huge thing. The turning point is coming, right? Because right after this comes the flood and Noah and the ark and the rainbow and all those things that we've heard of before. 
But what happens in the meantime and what is it that God wants us to understand as we try to get there? That's what we're going to look at this morning. So if you would, I'd like you to pray with me. Lord, we pray this morning that you would open our hearts and our minds to your word. We pray that by your spirit we would have understanding about your, this part of your word. Lord, that we would see the truth of it. Lord, we pray that we would have soft hearts to receive from you these words in a way that will transform us, that will change us, that will conform us. Lord, help us to see Lord, how your unfolding story in the world is one of great sobriety and also of great hope. Lord, we uh, pray that you will help us. I pray that you would help me this morning, that as I proclaim your word, that you would empower me and give me strength to speak clearly. For your glory, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So what we're going to do is look at this uh, section in three movements. They're unequal movements with regard to the text, but they're equal movements with regard to the weightiness of the themes that are introduced. So the first movement is going to be chapter five, all of it, from one to 30. And as we read it, uh, it is a genealogy, uh, but this, this genealogy has a very particular pattern. And as I read it to you this morning, what I want you to do is to listen for the pattern. And secondly, I want you to listen for when the pattern is broken. Because often in these genealogies, it's when the pattern is broken that the author is making a particular point. So let's read this together and we'll see what the first movement is in this section. Genesis chapter 1. Nope, Genesis chapter 5, verse 1. There we go. We're all oriented now. Here we go. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he, cre- he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived for 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image. And named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived for 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh for 807 years, and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived for 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan for 815 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan had lived for 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel for 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel had lived for 65 years, he fathered Jared. 
Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared for 830 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived for 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch for 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived for 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah for 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived for, eight, or for 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech for 782 years and, he, and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. When Lamech had lived for 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. And Lamech lived after he fathered Noah for 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Lamech were 777 years and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. What do we see in this rather mundane genealogy, this lineage of the line of humanity? What I want to say is that there are three places where we see unique contributions within the pattern. And in each of them, it points to God's ongoing goodness in his creative purposes that have been preserved despite the fall and sin and death entering the world. We see this first of all in verses one through three. Pastor Nick, if you were here last week, preached extensively on the hope of the line of Seth at the end of how Seth was a replacement son in many ways for Cain after he had killed Abel, how he stepped into a role of being the true descendant of Adam. And what you see here in verses one through three is a very clear sign that the author wants us to see that. That just as God created Adam in his own image, just as God had created this new humanity out of nothing as the beginning of his line, so using the language of Genesis 1 again, the author says, Seth was in the image and after the likeness of Adam. This is the line that the author wants you to pay attention to. Not the line of Cain that you saw at the end of chapter four that was descending further and further into death and destruction and murder and mayhem. But this was a line of promise that would bring hope to humanity. That humanity, though marred by sin, continues to brokenly express the image of God in a beautiful way. 
That's the first thing the author wants you to see. The second thing is once we get into verse um, verse three and following, we see this pattern, right? When so-and-so was X number of years old, he fathered Y and had other sons and daughters, and then he lived another Y years, and then there was a total of a number of years, and then he died. And we do need to see this repetition because it would be so striking to the hearers in Hebrew. And he died, and he died, and he died. So what we see is this thread of hope that that there is this line of humanity that reflects God's image that continues and yet death is now the backdrop in which that humanity lives over and over and over again. Except in the two places where the pattern was broken. Did you notice it? First, you see it in verse 21. Enoch, seventh in the line from Seth. So striking how it's described. Verse 22, Enoch is is described as one who walked with God. We see it again in verse 24. Enoch walked with God. And at the very end, so striking, he did not die, but God took him. He was not. What do we make of this? Well, there's not a lot of explication, is there? We don't know what it meant exactly for him to walk with God, although we know that Noah walked with God, that Abraham walked with God, that Moses walked with God. A few people were mentioned in the Bible as people who walked with God. There was some characteristic of a particular attention to and righteousness of relating to and living in relationship to God. We don't know exactly all that looked like, but what we do know is that in the end, somehow he did not die, but he was taken up to be with God. Only Elijah throughout the whole scriptures, only Elijah similarly had such a, a fate. And it points us to this hope, to this hope that one could walk with God and not die. That one could be righteous and live and escape the curse. Now obviously this is not the general pattern. This is not a hope that we can hold on to for ourselves as we look at the broader biblical teaching. But Enoch stands out as this little bright light in this litany of and he died and he died and he died and this one didn't die but he walked with God and he was not for God took him there is hope that the curse of death could be broken and secondly having looked at Enoch then the second break in the promise is starting in verse 28 begins normally Lamech When he was such and such years old, he fathered a son. 
But rather than just giving a name, as all the other ones did, he fathered Kenan, he fathered Mahalalel, he fathered Jared. It says he fathered a son, and he called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. So Noah is the other break. He's at the end of this line, and what you see is that he's given a particular name, Now, if you have a Bible with footnotes, you would see that in verse 29, the word relief has a footnote on it that would say that the name Noah sounds like the Hebrew word for relief or rest. Different translations might have the NIV has comfort. The message by Eugene Peterson says that this one might give us a break. I thought that was kind of nice. Give us a break from the toil and the hard work. Might give us a break from bearing the fullness of the curse that has fallen on us because of our sin. There may yet be comfort and rest and escape from the curse for God's people. And Lamech names his son Noah in hopes that Noah might be one that God would use to bring that relief and comfort to his people. Friends, I wonder, as you think about how you navigate life, do you feel like the unending, relentless nature of the curse of sin is overwhelming your life? Death is coming, death is coming, death is coming. Life is hard. It is toil, it is pain, it is hardship. In chapter five of Genesis, God wants to remind us that he has not abandoned his people. But there is a line of hope in Seth. There is a promise of one who did not die but walked with God and was not because God took him and one who would bring relief and comfort an escape from the curse. These are breadcrumbs, little, little moments along the way where the light breaks through the darkness, a little morsel of food to keep us going in hope. It's like in the Lord of the Rings when at the council of Elrond, suddenly Aragorn is revealed not to simply be a ranger, but to be the descendant of kings and to be the one who can rightfully take up the sword of Narsil, the sword that attacked the enemy victoriously. Here we see similar signs. He's dropping us these breadcrumbs that Maybe not all is bleak, and maybe a king could come. This is the hope that chapter 5 could bring us. I want to spend one minute on an excursus for you. The other thing you might have noticed besides the pattern and these things is that these people lived a really long time, 
What the heck is going on with that? All right, let's just talk about this for a minute. The answer is there's a lot of really fun speculation about what this might mean and how this might work. Uh, it might, some people speculate that their years were shorter. Some people speculate that generations were skipped through this, and so they were covering multiple generations with these ages. Some people think that there's a lot of really interesting and creative Sumerian and Babylonian astrology and numerology going on, that all the numbers are figurative and not real, but it's really hard to read it in those ways. Instead, as you look at the whole big picture, there's actually a parallel genealogy to this one. This line takes you from Adam and the son of Adam, Seth, all the way to Noah. And there's a, par- there's a genealogy in chapter 11, starting in verse 10, that takes you from Noah's son, Shem, all the way to Abraham, with 10 generations each. And interestingly, what you see is the ages seem to decrease. They're getting smaller and smaller as they go along. And there are times I think that maybe before the flood, the world was not quite as hard as it is now. That's my own guess. The further we get from the fall, the shorter lifespan comes for a little, to, to a large extent. We're moving from eternity to mortality. That's my own speculation. That's worth about one cent. Uh, for, <laughs> um, but uh, I do think that it's, it's possible that the ancient world was much more different from our world today than we imagine it. Um, but I also want you to see that in cultural expectations, in, as the ancient Near East readers were reading this, they were actually thinking that these numbers were very, very reasonable. For instance, there is a table of kings of Sumeria, and they lived, eight kings ruled for 241,000 years. Those eight kings ruled, ruled for that long. Okay, according to their tables. So when you look at this and you think from the birth of Seth to the death of Noah is under 1,800 years, that actually seems kind of reasonable. Uh, it's, you may not think so coming from a modern worldview where you think nobody lives after 120 years, but recognize that the cultural expectation and the questions that we bring to it are very different than the kinds of questions that might have been brought to it in the ancient Near East. With that, I'm going to punt. You can come talk to me about it afterwards if you want to talk more about what that means. But chapter 5 has this thread of hope, this thread of hope where the storyline might look a little hopeful particularly in line in light of chapter 4 when we saw the the sin of Cain and the outworking of sin in the world. But then when we get to the next movement in our section, that's chapter 6 verses 1 through 7, uh, we will have a big but. <laughs> there is hope, but let's look together at chapter 6 verses 1 through 7. Let's read this again together. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever for he is flesh. 
His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Well, if there was a thread of hope, this is a dark picture upon which that thread of hope is laid, is it not? And let's just acknowledge from the start, verses one through four is one of those sections of scripture that I believe is put there to confound us so that we do not think that we know everything. Uh, this, this section is quite discussed uh, in commentaries and um, uh, the question of the identity and the meaning of some of the titles and names and uh, exactly what is going on. Uh, there is a lot of speculation and I'll talk about that in just a minute. To start with, in verses 1 through 4, regardless of how we read this, we need to see that it's heading towards verse 5. And in the meantime, verses 1 through 4, what I think we see is is an example of the ongoing decay of humanity. Male and female had been commanded to be fruitful and multiply. This pinnacle of God's creation of humanity that was going to rule over the world under God's rule and be fruitful and multiply there so that they might have dominion to bless the world and so that the world might flourish in life instead has gone bad and I believe that what you see here is an abuse of sex and power violation wantonness Part of the reason that I see that is when you look at verse 2, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Turn back with me one page in your Bible. Maybe two. Chapter 3, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good or beautiful for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit. In the original language, a reader would hear the same verbs, saw, something beautiful, attractive, desirous, good, and took them. This taking is not a good taking in chapter six. It is a selfish, it is a covetous, it is a controlling take. And therefore, whatever we think of who the sons of God were, and there's lots of speculation, 
They might be angels. This is suggested at least plausibly from the New Testament. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, or in Jude, verses 5 and 6, talks about a potential pattern of sin between angels and humanity. Some think it's the sons of Cain as opposed to people in the line of Cain as opposed to in the line of Seth. Though I think this is less likely because it doesn't really work out with the way that humanity is described in verses 1 through 3. Some people think that it's tyrannical rulers that there's a sense in which these sons of God were exalting themselves as rulers of the nations around, uh, around the line of Seth. And they were ruling in this incredibly aggressive and destructive way, taking women into their harems, into their, their courts, taking them as possession and using them. These are the three options that are out there. They all have problems. None of them are decisive in my mind. But regardless of how we read that, what we do see in verses one through four is that what it meant to be good, to be fruitful and to multiply, had become wrong and they were filling the earth with this. And God mercifully responds and says, I will not let you live for thousands of years or almost a thousand years and continue to perpetuate this evil. I'm going to limit your lifespan. And as you see, this is, ex- this is exactly what plays itself out, not immediately, but over time in the Old Testament. Verse 4 talks about the Nephilim who are giants or who are the fallen ones. This is a word that is also used in Numbers 13. If you remember the story where the 12 spies uh, from Moses go into the promised land to scout out the land that God was telling them to enter into and take because it was good. And they saw the giants. Those are the Nephilim. They saw these huge, scary men. And again, whoever they are in verse 4, we need to recognize that they were mighty warriors, not in a valiant sense of doing good and fighting for justice, but they were fearsome men who were doing evil. They were using their power for selfish gain. This is the picture, I believe, that leads us to verse 5. And it helps to make sense of verses one through four. Because in verse five, we see with such clarity where the author is going with this section. Look at it again. There cannot be a more clear statement of the pervasiveness and the depth of sin as it has infected and infused itself into human beings than this. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. Friends, at the end of chapter one, God looked at his creation and he rejoiced and he said it was very good and he rested from his work. Five chapters later, 
God is looking at his creation and seeing how great the evil is that had spread. God responds with grief. Like a jilted spouse or a betrayed best friend, he recognizes that every intention of the people that he had made, men and women that he had made in his image for his glory to honor and worship him and to live under him, they now were consumed with evil and God will not stand by. I will blot them out. I will not allow them to continue to perpetuate and to multiply this evil But mankind and all of the creatures that are under him, the birds of the air and the the animals on the ground, the ones that God had given him dominion over, they would all be wiped out because of the evil of it. Because sin had spread everywhere, judgment would go everywhere. And God would undo, in many ways, the creative work that he had done. Where he had breathed life, now he was going to bring death. Where he had parted the waters and created order so that life might flourish, now he was going to bring the watery chaos of a flood to destroy his creation again. This is a quick turn, and it's a summary, and we will see as we unfold in the chapters to come more of this, but it certainly raises a question. Was their sin really that bad? Because, you know, in our culture today and in our world today, we really want to believe that people are good, or at least are some good, Right? We really want to believe in our culture today that by improving education, by increasing social resources, by meeting physical needs, that we can somehow eradicate the sinfulness of human hearts and suffering in the world. And look, none of those things are bad things to do, but that end is not possible. And it is a modern dream that we might actually eradicate this. G.K. Chesterton, 20th century uh, thoughtful writer, writing about original sin, said this, it is the only part of Christian theology which can really be proved. The strongest saints and the strongest skeptics in years past alike took positive evil as the starting point for their argument. If it be true, as it certainly is, that a man can feel exquisite happiness in skinning a cat, then the religious philosopher can only draw one of two deductions. He must either deny the existence of God, as all atheists do, or he must deny the present union between God and man, as all Christians do. He writes this in his book, Orthodoxy, where he's attacking a third kind. He says the new theologians seem to think it highly rationalistic solution to deny the cat. (laughs) To deny that the evil is actually happening. We so want to deny sin. And yet it's so evident 
I was a history major. You cannot study human history and really think that people are good. And it is not that humanity has not improved. And it is not that there have been great things that have made things better in significant ways. But the 20th century or the 21st century is not a better place. Think with me. Is the Rwandan genocide any different than the French Revolution? Have we really done better in treating women and abusing uh, and preventing the abuse of power and sex? Have we really overcome greed or anger or violence or lying or deception or pride or selfishness? Are we really better? Or have we just found new contexts, new ways to express it? And of course, friends, the most sobering thing is that the question that we want to ask, is it really bad what they did? Was that really so bad? Needs to be the question that we turn on ourselves. Am I really that bad? If I'm honest about my own heart, The Apostle Paul said, I am the chief of sinners. We ought to humbly take the same title ourselves. How can this be? We read from Romans 1 earlier. What are the dynamics of our human heart that make every intention of our hearts evil always, continually? Romans 1 describes how we deny the truth of God's existence how we question his character and his goodness, how we doubt or reject his sovereignty, how we do not honor God, how we do not thank God for all that he has done for us, how we exchange the glory of God for the glory of our careers, of our families, of our success, of our personal self-fulfillment, of our pleasures, how we exchange the truth about God for a lie about what is true about the world and about ourselves and about how we not only do evil but how we also encourage others how we fall into at times leading people away from the God who is there prophet Isaiah in verse uh, 64 says we have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Even the best things that we do are tainted with our desire to justify ourselves. Even the best things we do, we hope that someone will see us and be pleased with us and praise us. Even the best things we do, we do for ourselves to build our identity to think, now I'm a good person, now I'm better than I used to be. Or look at me, I'm suffering by doing good for others. In doing so, how little we truly long for God to be first and central in our lives. Friends, maybe you're better than I am, but how often I forget God every day. I wake up determined to honor God in everything that I do. 
And if I can get through breakfast without forgetting him, it's a good day. So here's my application and my challenge. If you are questioning whether I am being too harsh, if you are questioning whether the Bible says this is true about you, that the intentions of your heart are this evil and deserve judgment. Purpose in your heart to sin for a whole day. No evil thought, no selfish impulse, no unloving response. Seek to live without sin and then come and tell me if your heart is not resonant with every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. And if you want a sounding board, you can ask your spouse or your roommate or your children, just, just in case you might be reading things through a, a lens. Um, it's always good to get objective outside. <laughs> Friends, this is what chapter 6, 1 through 7 points us to. That though chapter 5 says there's this thread of hope that God has not abandoned us, the backdrop of that is the increasing evil of the world that is bringing us to a point where God now regrets making the world. Where God looks at it and he says, I will not allow this creation that I have made to continue to destroy itself in such a terrible way, but I will bring a judgment on it. Just like us, Romans 3, where it says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and that the wages of sin is death. He says to the early world, I will bring this judgment on it. And just like them, we need help from beyond ourselves to be saved from this judgment. And where does that leave us? Well, thankfully, we have verse 8. This is the final movement in our, in our passage this morning. Look with me in verse 8. But. You always have to look for the buts in scripture. Because it's a really important word. But God. But so and so. These turning points are, are central in the storyline. So though it looks as dark as it can be. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. We've already seen him at the end of chapter five. He's the one who's going to bring rest and relief. He's the one in the line of Seth, the line of promise, the line of hope. He's the one who, who we hope will somehow break this pattern of he, he, had, he had a child and then he lived and then he died. Isn't it interesting? The pattern of genealogy, we, didn't, we don't learn about Noah's death. We actually have this suspension until the end of chapter nine. At the very end of chapter nine, it says, after the flood, Noah lived 350 years and all the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. And the author picks up that theme and he says, here's the end of the story. But in the meantime, there's this amazing act whereby God raises up a man who actually pleased him. A man upon whom God would look with favor. That there could be a righteous man who would stand in the gap and who could be an instrument through which God would, even in the midst of his judgment, save his creation and his people. Noah would obey God. 
when no one else would, and in doing so would be an instrument of his salvation. Noah would endure the flood and go through the judgment, but be carried through it, not destroyed by it. And yet we know, this is a preview and a spoiler, that by the time you get to the end of Noah's life, he too needs a savior. He too is not the final promise, the final expression of God's saving work. But friends, this is Christ. Christ who will come and go through the flood of God's judgment on sin at the cross. Christ who will come bringing comfort to sinners by being a refuge under whose righteousness we as sinners may hide and find rest from that judgment. We who under Christ and with the new life that he brings will find rest from the evil that rules in our hearts in our salvation. He who will come to free us from the power of the curse and set us free to live. Friends, this is the thread of hope. This is the beacon of light in the darkness. And yet we know that it is a true and good thing that this passage in Genesis with the promise of God's continuing goodness, the overwhelmingness of the sinfulness of humanity, and yet the pinprick of hope in a Savior who will come to deliver us. And isn't it sweet that this little chapter, it almost seems like a throwaway in the, in the buildup of the whole thing. This little chapter tells us the whole story of creation and fall and redemption and tells us about what God is doing in the world. People ask me why I believe in Christ. It's partly because I believe Jesus rose from the dead. That's a really good reason. But the other reason that I really believe in this is that because this story makes more sense of what I see, what I see in the world out there and what I see in my own heart, that I am created in the image of God, but that I am a fallen sinner and that apart from God's grace, my heart is evil always, continually, and that I need a savior and that God has provided one in Christ. Hallelujah. This is the good news of the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful to you this morning for this word. We pray that you will uh, continue to apply it to our hearts. Lord, we know that the depth of our sin is matched by the greatness of your love and mercy. And Lord, may we know that now as we come to your table. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It is fitting that we would uh, celebrate at the Lord's Supper uh, because this is where we come to celebrate his death uh, on our behalf, to celebrate his resurrection from the dead, to defeat sin and death. Uh, this is where we come to see how great our sin is, that it would n- require the very life of the Son of God to die for us. And yet we come to this table with both sobriety for that reason, but also with great joy because we have such a great Savior. 
because we have such a great rock in which we...